This morning our Bible reading comes from Matthew uh, chapter 19. We're reading from verse 13 through to 30. You'll see it on the screen behind me. And also if you've got one of our Bibles, it's on page 986. Then people brought the little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Let them come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, then keep the commandments. Which ones? he inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your father and mother, and love your neighbour as yourself. All of these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Thanks, Naomi. Um, If you don't have a handout, please do put your hand up. Um, There is a reasonably detailed outline, as well as a space to take notes. I've learned over many years that if I force you to take notes, then you have to concentrate. So um, please do have that there. That would be useful for you. Um, Can I also ask you, as we prepare to start, can I ask you to make sure you are sitting next to someone with whom you don't share a house? Okay, I want you to sit next to someone with whom you don't share a house because I'm going to get you to talk to each other at a couple of points in this talk, okay? And I don't want you just to talk to your spouse or your flatmate, okay? Go for it. And the final thing is, you lot sitting in the back row, that's a long, long way away. If you want to move closer, I wouldn't object. Okay? Okay, thank you very much. Now, if you grab the handout that you're given, you'll see on this side is an outline of what I'm going to speak about. On the reverse side also is the passage that uh, Naomi just read to us, if you don't have a Bible in front of you. Um, It's a real um, delight to be with you here again um, on your fourth birthday. Uh, I hadn't realised that that was today. Um, I think I've managed to be here most years and it's always a great privilege to both see familiar faces. Um, I've learnt not to say old faces, I get in trouble when I say that. To see familiar faces, uh, but also a number of people who I don't recognise. And I look forward to meeting you over the coming week. Uh, coming weeks. As I said, um, 
I serve as one of the pastors at Trinity Church Adelaide and one of the gifts of God to us is that we're part of a network and therefore, particularly at times of change, uh, it's a great way to be able to support each other and it's for that reason in particular that Luke's asked if I'll be here throughout the month of May. March, in fact. Yeah. Um, it's one of those days. Hey, I was looking forward to giving a kids' talk impromptu. I was wondering how that would go, so um, I'll know to come prepared next week. Um, uh, having said that, uh, and I, I am going to actually get you to talk with each other because I want to try a few different things today. Some things don't change, um, particularly in all of our churches uh, throughout the Trinity Network. That is our commitment to the Word of God as the thing that sets our agenda. So really all I'm going to do today is just walk us through that passage, make a few observations, and then ask us how we might respond as we hear God calling us. So with that in mind, let me lead us in prayer and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that it's been written for us and for our salvation. We pray this morning that you might speak through it to us about your Son and about the Kingdom of Heaven that is begun and brought to completion in him. Amen. Uh, Well, if you, like many of us, I think, are somewhat sceptical about the idea of an afterlife, uh, that's what Jesus is referring to, I think, when he speaks of the kingdom of heaven, Uh, this series is going to be all about trying to picture what he says it will be like. Now, the first difficulty for us, of course, is that it is so countercultural to speak about something that we don't yet have but are only looking forward to. Uh, this idea of delayed gratification, of having to wait to receive something great, is completely counter to the way in which our world works. No one wants to wait, all of us want it now. In fact, one of today's highest and most prized virtues is to live in the moment. Even if you're a believer, even if you've been a believer for years, it can be hard to get your head around this, about something that we don't yet have but only anticipate by faith. My confession is that I'm a minister of religion And at times I find it almost impossible to picture what it will be like because my experience is almost entirely of what it's like now. Uh, In today's passage, we're going to see three occasions where people meet Jesus and he challenges them about what the kingdom of heaven will be like. Uh, There are some little children, there is a rich young man and there are his disciples who've already thrown their lot in with him. And each time, as I said, I'm just going to walk through the passage and so that you don't take my words on it, you hear what Jesus has to say. So let's kick it off then. Verses 13 through 15, little children who have nothing. Verse 13, the people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and to pray for them. But the disciples rebuked him. Jesus said, let the little children, sorry, the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he placed his hands on them, he went on from there. It's one of those fascinating episodes where Jesus, who presumably has a very, very busy, important, significant ministry to conduct, takes time out to bless the little children. 
In so doing, I think what Jesus is saying is that anyone is welcome in the kingdom of heaven. Not just the impressive, not just the successful, not just the well-connected, not just those who have accomplished things or might be able to offer much. Little children have no track record and they have no guarantee of future performance. But Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to those like them. What Jesus is saying, and here's the blank for you to fill in if you have a pen there, Jesus is saying to be childlike, not childish. Jesus is saying to be childlike, not childish. That is, Jesus is not advocating immaturity or juvenile behaviour. Rather, in saying the kingdom of heaven belongs to those such as little children, he's saying that the way in is a description of dependence, of being totally dependent on others, of not being too proud to ask for help. I'm sure you've noticed that the one thing that is common for all little children is that they have no problem asking for more. Do they? Now, of course, in setting it up this way, Jesus is saying it will be hard for grown-ups to enter the kingdom of heaven because no one wants to feel helpless. Now, it's true, we like handouts. I work with university students and we've just come off O-Week where students will do the most extraordinary things to gain the most trivial of freebies. We don't mind handouts, but we don't want to be helpless. We don't like to feel useless as if we have nothing to contribute. We want to bring something to the table so we can be affirmed and validated and valued and so we know that we belong. Well, there's the first episode, little children who have nothing. Second episode, a man who seems to have it all, verses 16 through 22. Follow along again, next paragraph. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Well, which ones? he inquired. So Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your father and mother, love your neighbour as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to, go to, want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Next up is a man who has a common religious question for Jesus. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? It's kind of odd that he asked that question, isn't it? Given that Jesus has just said the kingdom of heaven belongs to helpless children who quite frankly can't do very much, but nevertheless he asks it. Now it's important to note, and I've uh, made a comment there for you on the handout, uh, throughout this passage Jesus uses a number of different pictures or words, I think that all reflect the same thing. There are differences, but in essence he speaks of eternal life or the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. 
there are differences, but largely I think he's referring to the same idea. And Jesus replies here then using the same vocabulary that the man has used. Verse 17, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. What I think Jesus is saying is that the commandments come from, verse 17, the one who is good. So if you live the way the one who is good suggests, you'll do the good things that are necessary to to enter eternal life. Uh, It is, I think, an image, interestingly, again, of a little child. A little child who will do anything to please its parents to do what its parents says. That, I think, is a universal desire. Now, to this point, this would all feel pretty familiar to the man. Let's assume that he's a Jew. And so he quite reasonably follows on in verse 18 with, well, which ones, which of the commandments ought I keep? Now, it's possible at this point that the man is a legalist. He's looking for the bare minimum. Just tell me what I need to do. Once I've done that, then I can slacken off. It's possible that's going on, although actually I suspect he has a genuine sincerity. He has, to use an old-fashioned word, a piety, a desire to do good, as we're about to see. And Jesus' answer, verses 18 and 19, it would also feel pretty familiar to the man. He lists five of the Ten Commandments specifically, and then he gives the general Old Testament principle, love your neighbour as yourself. And here's where it gets really interesting. Because at this point, verse 20, the man replies, did you notice what he said? All these I have kept. All these I have kept. Now that grabs our attention, doesn't it? Because I wonder what's going through your mind as you hear this man confidently assert to Jesus, I've kept all these commandments since I was a child. I don't know what you're thinking. I'm thinking something like, oh, really? Are you sure? Now, first glance, it feels like perhaps the man is just a little bit arrogant, maybe at least lacking in self-awareness, until we realise that actually he is deeply troubled. Something is still nagging away at him. You see, though he can say, I have kept all these commandments, nevertheless, he goes on, verse 20, what do I still lack? This man knows he's not as good as he seems to others. This man knows that God sees the inward secrets of his heart, not just the outward works of his hands. This man knows that living in the moment doesn't cut it in the dark times when he's honestly evaluating his life choices. Now, before we see how Jesus responds, I want you to skip with me to the end of that section, to verse 22, because Matthew, we discover, has held back two details about the man which are critical for understanding his state of mind, his motivation in asking the question in the first place. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Firstly, we're told he was young. I said I spend my time working with university students. 
university students who have the world at their feet and their life still stretching out before them. But we're told the man is also one with great wealth. Not just wealth, actually, but it's emphatic. Great wealth. Now, at this point, you might think, well, that's not like a university student. Uh, Although, as I'm constantly reminding the students I work with, they are incredibly rich in global terms. Now, why are these two details significant? Well, I think they're significant because the wealthy in particular are used to privilege. I think it raises for the question for us that when this man approaches Jesus, is he doing so because he thinks he's entitled to entry into the kingdom of heaven? After all, apparently he has been well blessed by God. He has great wealth. And he's still only young. Does it recast his question in verse 16 in a different light? Remember when he he asked, what good thing must I do to inherit to get eternal life? Is he really asking, what philanthropic project do I need to engage in that I might guarantee my future? We'll come back to his anguished concern in verse 20. All these I have kept, what do I still lack? What's really interesting at this point is what is how Jesus responds. You see, what Jesus doesn't do is shame the man for being deluded about his own goodness. He doesn't shame the man for being deluded about his own goodness. I say that because, did you notice earlier in the passage Jesus had said, only God is good? And yet, when this man insists he has kept all the commandments, Jesus doesn't highlight the man's sinfulness or his imperfections or his failures, which must be there if only God is good. There's a saying, you might have heard it, if you think you're without sin, you've just lied. So welcome to the club. But Jesus doesn't take that angle, does he? Maybe because he doesn't need to. Because the man has already admitted deficiency in his outwardly respectable middle-class existence. That's why he's here, with the nagging doubt in his mind. So what does Jesus do? Well, he cuts straight to the man's heart with the solution that he proposes in verse 21. If you want to be perfect, he says. It's important to notice here that the word perfect, it carries the sense of being complete. sense of being complete, even more than being blameless. If you want to be complete, Jesus is agreeing that this rich young man is not there yet. And what he does now is that he homes in on his riches and say that they are and says that they are his fundamental problem. Says Jesus listens to this rich young man. According to Jesus, the issue is not what does he lack, because he seems to lack for nothing. Ironically, the issue is what must he give up? 
His problem is not that he lacks for anything. He has great wealth. Rather, he has too much wealth. And that's what's stopping him from getting eternal life. As you'd know, if you've been reading through Matthew's account, Matthew has already recorded Jesus' very famous warning back in chapter 6. You cannot serve two masters, both God and money. You will love one or hate the other. And yet, we're going to see that this rich man is trying to do just that. And so it's his earthly riches that are stopping him from being perfected. Which means he has no treasure in heaven at all. In fact, the only way he can gain that treasure in heaven is to give up his treasure on earth. Which at least objectively is a reasonable trade to make. After all, the treasure on earth won't last for long. Rust will corrode. Moths will eat away. Thieves will steal. Share markets will crash. Critical clarification. Let me just step aside for one moment. Jesus is not anti-wealth per se. Jesus is not anti-wealth in and of itself. I say that because if Jesus were anti-wealth, it would mean that the God who does bless us with so many riches here in 21st century Adelaide, well, he wouldn't be the one who is good. Verse 17. Instead, you'd have to conclude that God is just conducting a massive scientific experiment on us to test us. If he gives us lots of good things, are we prepared to give them away to show our commitment to him? If we won't, then he smites us for it. That hardly paints God in an attractive light, particularly to unbelievers. Likewise, I think Jesus is not commending enforced poverty as if that would somehow guarantee entry into the kingdom of heaven because if he were doing that, well, it would just be another good work to add to the list of Ten Commandments to keep but one that would never change our heart. For this rich young man, Jesus says his great wealth is the obstacle stopping him from entering the kingdom of heaven. Because when, he, when called to, verse 21, follow Jesus, the man can't give up his earthly treasure. You might say he's not willing to go all in with Jesus. He won't give up his financial security because that gives him self-sufficient independence. And that's what he longs for. He won't be like a little child, entirely dependent on Christ alone for his hope. He will not allow Christ alone to be his light, his strength, and his song. And so we come to the poignant conclusion in verse 22. Verse 22, when the young man heard, heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Uh, the scene closes, I think, like the final scene in a movie. The rich young man, he walks off into the distance, sad, unfulfilled, unperfected, you might say. He 
He knows he has a problem, but he will not accept the solution. In this episode, Jesus is warning against any obstacle, I think, which might prevent us from entering the kingdom of heaven. It might be financial independence, like I suspect it was for this man. It might be fear of, ob- fear of persecution. It might just be apathy or a crippling concern about what others think of us. Here's what I'd like you to do for two minutes. I'd like you to speak with the person next to you or just in a little group about the question that I printed there for you. What obstacles might prevent you from going all in with Jesus? Okay, two minutes and then I'll come back and we'll keep moving. Over to you. Okay, thank you very much for doing that. I'm going to gather us back together. And uh, we'll come back to those groups one more time in a few minutes. Well, we've seen the little children who've been brought to Jesus. We've seen a rich young man who's walked away from him. Come to the third and final part, the disciples who've left everything to follow Jesus. Pick it up with me in verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. They asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne... You who followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Now, as a pains to insist in the last section that our good God is not anti-wealth. And yet, when the rich young man, who seems to have it all, nevertheless goes away sad, Jesus does make the rather wistful observation that wealth is a significant obstacle to entering the kingdom of God. Now, please don't water down Jesus' warning. It's not just hard. In effect, Jesus is saying it's impossible. And the image he uses, of course, well, it's it's, it's meant to be ludicrous, right? Picture a very big camel and an itty-bitty needle. You can't put it through. And that, of course, leads then the disciples in verse 25 who are greatly astonished to say, well, who then can be saved? What I think they're asking is, if the wealthy can't enter the kingdom of heaven, who can? Because they're still thinking in terms of merit. Not like a helpless child to whom the kingdom of heaven, we're told, belongs. Let me explain. I said that I have teenage children. My teenage children read a lot of, now I think this is the category, futurist dystopian novels. 
Uh, I think you probably know something about these. They basically all follow exactly the same plot line. Inevitably, they end with the climax of a handful of survivors being chosen to withstand Armageddon or escape on a spaceship to colonise some new world as the remnant of humanity. That's basically the summary of all teenage novels. The people who get chosen to go on that spaceship, they are always the wealthy, the powerful, the elite. They are the kind of people we expect to see saved. And this rich young man is meant to symbolise the best of humanity. He is moral and he is independently self-sufficient. But he can't bring himself to ask God for help. So he won't get any. And Jesus therefore confirms the impossibility of us saving ourselves. And that leaves Peter, verse 27, almost speechless. We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Now, I wonder what Peter's tone of voice was like when he asked this question. Was he indignant? We've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? Or was he just desperate? We've left everything to follow you. Will there be anything for us? It's possible that he's thinking in terms of, you know, what we have done, our efforts, the sacrifice that we've made. It's possible. But actually, I suspect Peter is just pointing out what is true. They have left everything behind to follow Jesus. They are in stark contrast with the rich young man who has walked away. The disciples have gone all in with Jesus because they realise they need him. They are just like little children. And now their plea is, Jesus, tell us it's not been in vain. Well, to reassure them that they haven't made the biggest mistake of their lives, Jesus answered them that though they have given up much, they will gain even more. Verses 28 through 30 at the conclusion, uh, there's a specific reward for these first 12 disciples. Uh, The main point here, I think, is that the Son of Man uh, is a king, hence kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. And then there's a general reward in verses 29 and 30, a general reward for all followers of Jesus. True, again, they must give up things, family or friends or fields or fortune, but they will also gain a hundred times as much and eternal life. What What wonderful reassurance of both the cost and joy of following Jesus. Uh, To return to how I began, uh, with comments about delayed gratification, my not very profound observation at the end of this passage 
is that Jesus is saying delayed gratification is both delayed and gratifying. It's both. So let me wrap it up then. Point four, give up versus gain. Give up versus gain. We've seen three encounters with Jesus. The little children, the rich young man, the disciples who've left everything to follow him. And the same thing comes through again and again. Everyone must give up something to follow Jesus. It's different for each person, no doubt. It might be wealth like the rich young man. It might be family, like Christians who come to faith from Muslim backgrounds. It might be fame and recognition. But everyone must give up something to follow Jesus because until we do, we're not really dependent on him. We don't know if we've really gone all in with him. If you're here today, someone investigating Jesus, then to add my welcome from that of Luke's before, we're delighted that you've joined us on a Sunday morning. It's actually the reason why four years ago this church was planted. It wasn't planted just so Christians could meet in a different location. It was planted so the people who don't know about Jesus might have a chance to come and, and, um, and discover him for themselves. So if you're here today, welcome. I want to be upfront and honest with you. Everyone must give up something to follow Jesus. And likewise, if you're here today as a believer who is struggling, trying to make sense of a terribly painful set of circumstances, well, Jesus promises cost and benefit. He never glosses over the cost. He is not trying to bribe us cheaply. And that, I think, is a warning we need to hear. Uh, At least in a couple of ways. Uh, One is that we can be tempted to cut corners in evangelism in order to get quick conversions, to not tell people the whole truth but just the start of it. But secondly, for ourselves we must not pay empty lip service to going all in with Jesus. If we never bear any cost, if we've never given up anything at all so that our lives look no different from those around us who don't follow Jesus, if we talk about the same things, if we save for the same things, if we dream about the same things, perhaps it suggests that We are like them and not following Jesus. Perhaps we belong with them and not in the kingdom of heaven. I want to finish today not with what you might need to give up but with what we stand to gain. I want to ask you, what is the thing for you? What ironclad guarantee and assurance would enable you to follow Jesus or to keep following him if you've been tempted to throw it all in because the cost is great? It is hard to live by faith and not by sight. In a moment, I'm going to get you to discuss that final question. What gain 
will compel you to follow Jesus. Not to make a bargain with him, but to be honest about what would motivate and lift your eyes upward so that you never walk away sad like that rich young man 2,000 years ago. Here's a few possibilities I thought of this week. Things that for me would help me compel me to keep following Jesus. One is the relief of knowing that I'm not alone. That everyone who follows Jesus has the same experience, even if it's not identical. You notice that back actually in Peter's response in verse 27? We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? We are not alone in our discipleship. Here's another possibility. Perhaps it's the appeal of the type of community that Jesus is forming to which every disciple and follower of his belongs. It is, according to the last verse in the passage, a place where the last will be first and the first will be last, to which I say, hooray! In the kingdom of heaven, the rich and powerful don't always come first. Isn't that wonderful to hear? This is the type of kingdom that this king is building. He is someone, I think, who is worthy of love and respect and obedience. Or maybe it's a conviction and certainty about the final outcome. There's a quote there for you at the end from Jim Elliott, American missionary who has martyred uh, in Ecuador on the first day in which he stepped ashore uh, trying to reach a native group that had never heard the name of Jesus. He's famous for his saying, he is no fool who gives up that which cannot be kept to gain that which cannot be lost. I first heard this when I was a university student because a bunch of students on the campus I was on were wearing T-shirts with this printed on it. It stuck with me ever since. Jesus has promised it will turn, right in, turn out right in the end. He's backed up his, his actions with his words. He's laid down his life to redeem yours and mine. And it seems to me that if I can trust Jesus with my eternal salvation... Surely he's worthy of that trust in the here and now. Okay, for two minutes, what gain will compel you to follow Jesus? Just with the groups around you. Then I'll call us back. I'll take any questions that you might have about what we've covered and then I'll close for us in prayer. Okay, two minutes. Thank you and I. Over to you. Okay, thank you very much. I apologise about interrupting, but perhaps you'll have an opportunity to continue reflecting on that and talking about that perhaps over lunch today. Um, thanks for being willing to turn and to share uh, with those around you.